I'm Linus. Welcome to Kids Talk Church History, a one-of-a-kind podcast where kids investigate the history of the church. Over 2,000 years ago, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Has he kept his promise? How has Jesus built and preserved his church against all odds? Come with us on a trip through history to find the answer, here on Kids Talk Church History. In 635, Emperor Taizong of China found Christianity so impressive that he wrote, The meaning of the teaching has been carefully examined. It is mysterious, wonderful, calm. It fixes the essentials of life and perfection. It is the salvation of living beings. It is the wealth of man. It is right that it should spread through the empire. When we think of early Christian missions, we don't usually think of China, but the gospel traveled that far soon after the turn of the 7th century. Stay tuned to hear this thrilling story. I'm Trinity, I'm 15, and I live in Charleston, South Carolina. I'm Mina, I'm 14, and I live in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And I'm Sophia, I'm 14, and live in Orlando, Florida. Taizong's words were quite poetic. They remind me of the words of King Edwin's advisor when they were discussing adopting Christianity in their English kingdom. We talked about him in another episode. And that was around the same time. King Edwin converted in 627, just three years before Emperor Taizong. So the gospel was really traveling in all directions, north to England and east to China. Do we know who brought the gospel to China? It might have gotten there even earlier than the 7th century, through merchants traveling the Silk Road. But we know that the person who talked to Taizong was a monk from Syria named Alipin. So what is the Silk Road? It's not an actual road with that name. It was a group of connecting routes that merchants used to transport Asian goods to the West and European goods to Asia. What kind of goods? Well, from Asia, there were silk, there was silk, jade, perfumes, and spices. And I've read that the main thing that Asia got from the West were horses. And the gospel. Exactly. Christian merchants would tell others about Jesus. How do I know about this? Well, a 6th century merchant named Cosmos reported that he found some Christian communities in India and Sri Lanka. Was this merchant a Christian? Yes, actually, from what is normally known as the Church of the East. We talked about it in our episode about Ephraim, the ancient poet from Syria. From what I've read, the patriarchs in the Church of the East were big on missions. One of them, Timothy of Baghdad, one of the most influential patriarchs of the Church of the East, sent over 80 missionaries to many regions of Asia and Arabia and kept in touch with them. He believed that preaching the gospel was an urgent task. Yeah, so Alipin was one of these monks, but he didn't travel alone. He was actually the head of a group of monks. That's actually a fascinating story. I never would have expected some missionaries to take the gospel to China so early in history. Yeah, and there's more to find out. We have here as our guest, Dr. Todd Godwin, author of Persian Christians at the Chinese Court, the Jiang Stili, and the Early Medieval Church of the East. Dr. Godwin lives in Japan, so he woke up early today to speak to us. Dr. Godwin, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your efforts to make this work. We have a lot of questions for you. Thank you guys, too. it's, It's awesome to be here. So first, can you tell us a little bit about the time in history when Alipin arrived in China? Emperor Taizong was from the Tang Dynasty, correct? Right. Um, But I was saying earlier um, that we need to start with when we found the Stele, one of the most famous monuments in the entire world. This is where we know about Alibun, but Alibun's, this text that we we read about Alibun was written 150 years after him. 
So we need to step back and think, well, who are the people that wrote this text and what was happening at this time 150 years later, right? So what we, what we do know is that there was trouble in the empire and that the foreign religions, um, the Christians, and we do have some Muslims there. We even have some Turkic Uyghur uh, religions there, some shamanistic. They, they all were very important because they were sort of like ambassadors to the, for, to the hinterlands in Central Asia, right? And so, you know, they were, they were like ambassadors, but also taking their culture, right? And so we, we, we know that like the, the emperor was saying, we have to start changing the tax code. These foreigners aren't paying their dues. And we, you know, and so there was a lot, there was some shakiness. And actually the reason that the monument uh, was covered up and preserved was because there was fear that it would um, be annihilated. So they purposefully buried the thing and covered it up to protect it. So we're about to enter a period of uh, real distress for the Christians. And this is what happens in 781. And so um, in the text, there's a lot in there about how the Christians have been useful to the empire. They've provided, they've been in the military. Um, they were good fighters. They were good citizens, right? So all that stuff is at the end. And to get the way back to Alaban then in the, in the early period, um, I mean, we, we can do that, but there's a lot, you know, we got to kind of sift through. Well, okay, well, the situation when Alban comes in, so 630, to do this study, you have to know so much. You have to know Chinese history. You have to know the history of Buddhism. You have to know the history of the Silk Road. You have to know early Islam. You have to know Persian history because the Persian Empire has just fallen, right? The Persian Empire falls about 630. Uh, um, Islam is shooting out. The Islamic religion and empire and army are coalescing, right? They're taking over various territories and the Persian empire has just fallen. So there were long uh, relations between the Persian empire and the Chinese empire because they were the great empires uh, outside of Rome. And so um, as the, the Persian empire falls, all these people who had worked for the imperial court, lots of Jews, lots of Christians, because the Jews and Christians are very international. They speak numerous languages. The Christians have connections over there in Rome because they have the same religion as the Romans do. Um, so they're very international. They're very educated. They do lots of scientific work. They translate Greek philosophy. They read the Greek medical, medical texts and astronomical texts, right? And so as the Persian empire falls, these guys don't have a job anymore. And so these ancient connections that had connected the Persian empire to the, the Persian court, to the Chinese court, they begin to um, surface. And they basically said, hey, you know, we worked for you guys for a long time. We were useful over there. Could we be useful? Could we have some sort of function in your court as well? And they and the Chinese knew that they had long been uh, useful intercourtly intermediaries. So they're like, sure, come on over here. So so that that was the situation. That was part of the situation. Another really fascinating image and detail that I will just throw it in right here. Can you guys see this slide well enough? Do you see that? Mm -hmm. Like, I it's mm -hmm. yeah. So this you can see that they've had the heads chopped off, unfortunately. But these are um, this is an imperial graveyard from the Tang period, and there there are lots of Persian royals in the imperial grave. So these were like part of the royal family, representatives, representatives of, the, of the famous royals that had guided the, the Chinese empire. They put the Persians right there with them. Why do they do that? Because they had taken them under their wing. The Persians were protected and seen as, oh, this is a very useful, long, you know, long, uh, good courtly relations, long interrelations with the Persians. 
And so they were sort of taking them under their wing and protecting them. And so in the earliest Chinese, earliest texts um, that we look at, we can see that the Christian religion was called the Persian religion, always. It was, that was the official name. There was even pressure put on people to make sure to call it the Persian religion. What are we going to call this thing? Make sure you call it the Persian religion. There was an imperial edict to call it that, right? Why did they do that? There's a lot of speculation, but one of the reasons was that it was very much tied to the Persian empire, the Persian history, the Persian legacy, the Persian connection, right? So religion at this time, I mean, even today and always, like it's a, religion is a cultural force. You know, it's there's lots of things and there's culture, there's science, there's international relations all bound up with it. So that's one of the reasons that's, we don't really know that the Chinese saw the Christian religion in many different ways, but certainly one way was as a political force in a, in a, in a way to, to seal an alliance with an important uh, political partner out there. So slightly beyond Central Asia, but Persia, you know, is on one end of the Silk Road and China is on the other. So, right. So all that trade that went back and forth, China and Persia are two of the key, you know, endpoints for that. So that, I mean, that's a little bit about what was going on uh, with Alaban when he, when he first came in. Um, so if Christianity was accepted in the empire at this time, <clears throat> what caused it later on to be persecuted if it was an accepted religion? So, uh, so the 781, right. That's when the, we can see that there's kind of stress. The, the foreign religions are starting to go, oh, wait a minute, we might get kicked out of here. We need to remind the empire and the emperor and the court how useful we have been. Okay, and it was not until it was it was not that long later, 845, when all the uh, all the foreign religions are just kicked out. There's a big riot, there's a lot of economic insecurity, the gold, the, the, the bronze bells and things, and, and the statues that they had put in the various temples, not just the Christian temples, but the other temples, were seen as wasting money, um, and they were just plain kicked out, right? So what happens, it, so it, it, there is a question too, uh, I, you know, I don't hope I'm not jumping forward too fast, but one, one of you guys, or somebody asked, why was the Tang period called the golden age of the Ch Chinese history? And I, I can answer that, but I will just say that this golden age of connection to Central Asia and the Silk Road starts to close down. And what happens is Islam spreads, um, the Islamic empire, the, the, the caliphate moves from Damascus which is quite, you know, it's almost in the Mediterranean, it's almost, almost in the Greek-speaking world. It moves all the way over to Baghdad, which is much more centrally located along the Silk Road. It's, Baghdad is basically in Iran, right? And it's connected to the Persian Sea. And so the center of Islamic power moves way over to the east. Islam is now spreading. Um, there are Islamic courts popping up and Islamic control starts to take place through the Silk Road. And the Chinese are sort of like, we're out we're done with that medieval, you know, early medieval Silk Road where we had Chinese power moving into the Silk Road. We had sort of Persian Chinese alliances and other polities too were there. That, that kind of diversity, that, that sort of situation begins to close down. I mean, the Silk Road continues, but that golden age of the Chinese Tang Dynasty Silk Road, that begins to close down around in the middle of the 800s. That makes sense. Um, can you tell us something about Timothy I? He seemed quite unique in his passion for missions, at least at that time. Can we compare him to Pope Gregory I? We talked about Gregory in our episode about Augustine Canterbury. 
So I read up, I had, I had heard of Greg Gregory. I was certainly no authority on him. I, I never will be. I'm certainly not now. And I was, I was never, but I did read a wiki page about him and I, I had heard his name. The things that I, I do see, which are, are connected to Timothy, Timothy is alive when the Stigley goes up. So Timothy is a man of his time. Um, so what, what before the center of Islam moves to Baghdad, which is 750, there's a big, um, a big civil war between the various Islamic factions in the 750s, 760s. When that's finally over, Islam is now like, okay, we are going to accept all, all these different people. You don't have to be an Arabic speaker, speaker to be a Muslim. Um, we're going to move our center of power over to Baghdad, which is a more, it's like moving kind of from, you know, it would be kind of like moving over from like, um, you know, Philadelphia to New York. It's just a bigger, they're both big cities. But New York is kind of the center of everything, right? So you move over to Baghdad, right? Now you're in control. Now you control all that Silk Road, uh, all the mercantile, all the all the goods goods moving on mercantile, in the, even the seas trade going into the Persian Gulf. Okay, and Timothy goes with them. So Timothy is the leader of these Christian groups, and these Christian groups are still very powerful in spreading education. Um, in in you know they're in charge of goods. They're merchants. They have culture. They have this ancient Christian culture focused on the Aramaic language. And the Aramaic language, it's also called Syriac, is quite close to Arabic. Um, it's sort of like jumping from Italian to Spanish. They're very, very similar, right? So because they had they, they spoke uh, Syriac natively, I mean, they, they used it natively, um, and they still do. They're still Christians in Iraq today who are speaking uh, Syriac right now. Uh, so but, so that they were very useful in translating Greek texts into Arabic. Um, they were still doing courtly kind of intermediary relations, being um, you know, liaisons with other governments. And Timothy is the head of these groups, right? So Timothy is very bright. He's very learned. He's very politically savvy. And he can control these new forces, right? And he did um, encourage missions, um, but missions had always been encouraged. It wasn't a new thing. And you got to remember that the, the, the Muslims are now in control, and they're also sending uh, missions around. At this time, though, Islam and Christianity are pretty friendly with one another. As we get more into the Middle Ages, this will start to change. You know, that's a whole big story itself. But like, so Timothy is seen as a useful partner in the, the new... Um, it's called the Abbasid, the Abbasid Caliphate. They saw him as being on the same page. So if Timothy has people that can speak Chinese and speak Turkic and speak different Iranian languages, and, and, and they can do useful work and they can sort of seal deals with courts, that's great. So the Islamic leaders would have seen him as a, as a useful person to know. Timothy also was very learned in Greek philosophy, Aristotle and Plato. And the, the Muslims were, were, were absorbing all this Greek philosophy. They were beginning to do their own science. And, you know, most of the Greek scientific works that we have from the ancient period come from Arabic translations. They would have been completely lost. I mean, the Greeks still had a lot of them. But a lot of the medical works and the, and the astronomical works came survived down to us to, the, to this day in Arabic translations and often the um, originals in Greek had been lost. So Timothy was in charge of all that translation and all that inter uh, all that sort of intercultural work that was going on. How many languages were in the empire at this time? Because you said they were translating into different languages. 
Now, when you talk about the empire, do you mean the empire that's now moved over to Baghdad when Timothy the first is in charge of things? Sure. Okay. Yeah. The Abbasid Caliphate, you know, would have, they would have been Arabic speakers. Islam would have been their main religion. So obviously Arabic. Persian, close to like what we would today call Farsi, widespread. But there are different um, Persian dialects, different Iranian languages. I'm just going to mention really, really quickly a language that I had never even heard of until I was a graduate student at UCLA called Sogdian. Sogdian. Sogdiana was a place. Sogdian language, Sogdian culture. Sogdian language is an Iranian language, but these guys were one of the main Silk Road uh, trading groups. Sogdians, the Sogdian people and the Sogdian culture, the Sogdian language, um, you guys have heard of today Tashkent, which is now in Kyrgyzstan, right? Tashkent. Um, so the area of um, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, that area would have been populated by people that spoke the Sogdian language. The Sogdians were um, traders along the Silk Road, taking goods and culture from Iran through the, to the, through the Silk Road into China, going back to about 200 BC. So uh, we discover more and more about the Sogdians. The Sogdian language wasn't even understood until about the 1920s. I mean, it's not, not even about 100 years we have been able to read the Sogdian language. So, it, so we have monuments and, and the Sogdians were referred to in these, these uh, medieval Chinese texts. We didn't know who they were. Um, it's a major, major uh, language. So you, so, so you have that language. And there's, there's, there are several Turkic and, and Mongolian languages, um, which are pretty close to one another but not exactly the same. And there are other languages too. We have various kinds of Indian languages that are sort of related to what might be Hindi today, Bengali, something like that. There are lots of small pockets of dialects and things like that, but those are some of the main ones. Persian, Syriac, Arabic, Farsi, Sogdian, and then Chinese or Middle, Middle Chinese, and then Mongolian and Turkic, Turkic types of languages. Alapin and the other monks spoke Syriac, right? How did they communicate with Taizong? The thing about the Syriac languages is, oh, like in the Middle East, I'm talking basically from Syria, Damascus, Lebanon area today, over to Iraq, it would have been used as a native language. But Aramaic is an ancient Jewish and Christian language. So it was also a liturgical, it was a sacred language, kind of like Latin. And so as you get further and further into Central Asia, you're going to have fewer and fewer people who can actually speak it. But now, as an ancient liturgical kind of prestige language, the letters, the letters, the, the Aramaic alphabet is the basis for all kinds of languages all through the world. Like if you look at the ancient, um, the way that Mongolian was written, Mongolian even today, um, Inner Mongolia is now, is now uses their ancient script. So we have several Mongolian and Turkic languages which you, which are written down in the Aramaic or, or Syriac script. So the question is, how would they have they have communicated with Tang Taizong? Well, you know, people have been learning second and third and fourth languages for thousands of years. The people along the Silk Road were multilingual already. Most people would have grown up being bilingual, tri trilingual. Chinese is actually a pretty simple language. So um, I think they would have become good at Chinese really quickly, especially their kids. And the Sogdians were good at Chinese going back to like the second century BC, right? So we're talking, well, this is 800 AD when Timothy goes in there, right? Alapun is like 650, 630 AD. I'm sure they did quite well with Chinese. So on the Silk Road, there were these monasteries and they had monks there. But how are these monks different from the monks that we associate with the traditional medieval monk? 
How are the Chinese monks different? You know, what is Chinese at this time? When China is so connected to the Silk Road and China's border extends way over almost into sort of Tajikistan, you know, Uzbekistan, way out into Central Asia, what is China? They had Chinese characters and they um, had the Confucian rituals and that sort of thing. But China is very, 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 very Central Asian. So if the, if the Syriac Christians were already spreading into the, down through the Silk Road in the first century, and they had been there by the time Alabun comes in for four or 500 years, right? They're very accustomed to this environment. So yes, they were Christian monks. They lived a life of quiet contemplation, prayer, Bible reading, uh, prayerful work, just like any monk would have been anywhere and even today. But they, you know, they would um, have been used to, some of them might have been Buddhists before they became Christians. And so Buddhism is also a Silk Road religion. Buddhism, the very nature of Buddhism is, is, is a religion that can spread across long distances because it has culture. Even though the Buddhist mentality is a way to sort of get out of the, the stress of the everyday, right? So there's a very strong reason why Buddhism just spread out like wildfire through the Silk Road. It's a Silk Road religion. So these cultures are, are pretty similar. So there's, and you know, and just the, the, the life of a monk in a, in a Buddhist monastery, there's a lot of crossover to how a monk would be in any other monastery, any, any other religion that has monasteries. You know, Hindus have monasteries, Christians have monasteries. There are types of monasteries in Islam too. So the culture is very similar between the different religions. It was just different religions. It is. Yeah, yeah. it is. They, they okay. would have greeted travelers. They would have provided hospitality. They would have given people a, a place to chill out and rest, spiritual sustenance and teaching and, and um, spread news. Uh, you know, they were cultural information centers. They would have provided news of what was happening in other cities because they were well connected, that sort of thing. Some of their monasteries were built along the Silk Road, right? We were just were they just resting stops or did they provide some services in communities around them, such as hospitals or schools? They would have done the whole thing. Everything that that monasteries do that you have that you know about in the in the medieval European period, I don't see any major difference with them. Are any of these monasteries still around today? Well, you know, in in Iraq, in in Iran, Christianity, ancient Syriac Christianity, still survives. Armenia, which is just next to Iraq, is a fully Christian country. Ethiopia, which is just across the Red Sea, is a fully Christian country. Ethiopia is a country of 80 million people, and about 70% of them are Christians, and they have an ancient, ancient Christian tradition going back to the first centuries. They have an ancient Jewish tradition that goes back longer than that. So these Christian traditions still exist. Now, people don't realize, so most people today, when they think of the Middle East, they think, oh, everybody's a Muslim. Well, that's, there's, I mean, it's by far a majority Muslim, Right. But there are lots of very big Christian communities. And I saw a chart somewhere. It's something, it was really surprising. Like up until like the 1940s, it was something really big, like 30% of the Middle East was Christian. We don't think of now, I mean, now it's pretty small and it's going, it's getting smaller and smaller. As Islam, as Islam gets more conservative, you know, and the West gets more kind of secular and liberal, um, it just kind of shrinks. But like Lebanon, huge populations of Christians, Syria, huge Christian communities, right? And yes, there are still monasteries still functioning in Turkey, uh, Christian Syriac monasteries still functioning in South Turkey, through Iraq, in Iran, 
Syria, in Lebanon, that those sorts of places. Um, during the Tang Dynasty, was China as large as it is now? No, Tang. The Tang. The Tang period was the, the golden age, right? And the, the the borders of the Tang extended way out into what we would consider like uh, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan today. So way a lot further than it is today. Okay, so how widespread was the Church of the East? It was based in Iraq, right? Um, it was based in Iraq, right? But if we're talking the eighth century, well, we know they were given free reign. You know, it was a government uh, sponsored by the government. It was given the government stamp of approval, right, up until the eight forties. So all the way through to China. So that takes you to the basically to the Pacific Ocean. So it goes all the way from the Mediterranean to the Pacific. There are very huge uh, ancient Christian Syriac communities in India still to this day. They're still there. They, 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 they chant in Syriac. They teach Syriac. They speak in Syriac. It spreads way, way down. Um, but if we move beyond the Tang period, you know, eventually when, okay, so there's going to become a, a kind of a rough period from the 800s um, up until about the 1100s or so. Not a good time. But the Church of the East and the Syriac Christians are going to come back in the Mongolian Empire because there are transmitters of culture, right? They teach science and language. They do translation work. They are intermediaries with the people along the Silk Road and the Europeans, right? So as Europe starts to arise, you know, we get into the um, Crusades period. Once again, the, the Syriac Christians are there doing translational work with the, the whole, that's a whole fascinating period. I don't know much about it, but the Mongol, the Mongol empire period, the Mongol empire was a vast, vast empire. They had relations with the Europeans. Now the church is starting to become Roman Catholic. The Orthodox and the uh, Catholics are now split. The Greek speaking, you know, Slavic Eastern Orthodox communities are going to become smaller and smaller. They get kind of pinned in. But the Latins grow up, and this gives the um, the Syriac Christians one more kind of life of a several hundred years. And in the Mongolian Empire, there were there's lots of Christian influence. We had Christian princesses, Christian queens, uh, all kinds of Christians working in the court. And during that period, um, we even have Christianities uh, being taken over to Korea and to Japan. So we, there's evidence of that sort of stuff. So it really extends almost, you know around the entire world. I mean, I don't know if it ever made it to Alaska, but you know, it almost made it to the new world at that point. Was Christianity already an established religion before Alipin and the monks came to China? Was it an, an established gospel? religion? Yeah, was it like a rare religion that some monasteries participated in or was it, did it start when Alipin came to China? So you're asking me, what was the state of Christianity before it came into China? Before Alipin, so Alipin brought Christianity to China. Right. Were there any other monks or merchants that may have brought the gospel to China? Yeah. We don't have texts that describe Christians in China before the Tang Dynasty, but there were certainly, they were certainly there because we know that they were in the Silk Road. We know they were in Iran. We know that these Sogdian people, we have texts from them. We have Christian texts from the Sogdians, right? So we, we, they had to have been there. We just don't have texts in medieval Chinese um, talking about them. We don't have any evidence. And when you talk about sources, what was written on the uh, stele? Is that the historian mm -hmm. stele? What was written on there that pertained to the Christians? But what is on there, it basically says that the court has accepted the religion. It, the court has approved the religion. 
And here's what the Christians have done. And here's the connections that they've had to the glorious Chinese empire, starting back in the 600s with Alabon. So at the start of this episode, we can pay... We compared these missionaries to China, to those who went to Europe or to England around the same time, but their experiences must have been entirely different. England was full of small kingdoms fighting over each other, while China was experiencing a golden age of arts and culture and literature. How different was China from Syria? And do you think Alipin and his monks had had some sort of cultural shock when they arrived there. You want to get away from this notion that they came from far, far, far away to go on the other side of the world to be a missionary. Because most likely they would have, you know, Alabun probably came, he didn't come from England to go to China to be a missionary. He probably came from like um, Tashkent or Uzbekistan. He probably came a few hundred miles. He might have even been living right outside the border. He might have actually even grown up in China. He might have been a native speaker of Chinese, but he might have grown up near a monastery, a Syriac monastery, and he might have grown up around uh, these Syriac, East Syriac people. And when he went to the Chinese court, he might have um, been just, it would be like somebody growing up in the suburbs of Tokyo, finally getting a a meeting with, you know, the, 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 the prime minister of Japan or something who had like they may, they may, they might have both spoken native Chinese, but you know Timothy did send out missionaries. They did send out missionaries over quite far distances, but we don't always know when you're reading a text how far these people came from. So eventually, the Christians were persecuted, but how was the persecution in China to the Christians different from like the persecutions in the Roman Empire when it was more based off of proper <coughs> worship of the gods? So was it any different from that or was it for the same reasons? I would say that we probably want to look at uh, each persecution as it goes, like take them in turn. And yes, there is probably this, the the Christians were not uh, respecting the gods and they were enemies of the empire and that sort of stuff. But there's often external uh, factors, like maybe a plague had just happened or the economy is bad and everybody's scared and there's not enough bread and people can't eat and they're like oh we need to blame somebody that sort of stuff so when the like i say the the reason that um the the christians were pushed pushed out and we also know that the other big iranian religion called manichaeism they were pushed out as well and the uyghur uh, uh diplomats and their sort of shamanistic animistic beliefs their cults they were also pushed out at the same time right so it's so, and we know quite clearly that there was an economic shortage. There was fear about what was happening. Islam is spreading. Uh, China doesn't have the same power along the Silk Road that it once had. They knew they couldn't control it anymore. They had to let it go, and they're like, "Okay, we're going to do things differently now." And these foreign guys, you know, taking up their tax burdens and and you know, and us feeding them and giving them tax tax loopholes and that sort of stuff. That needs to end. So these guys got to go. It's not so much as we hate Christianity, we, we, we don't understand it, we, we don't believe it, we don't trust it being here, we don't like it anymore. A lot of it had to do with ex- external sort of ex- economic um, reasons. And it didn't just fall on the Christians, it fell on all of those, I guess, exactly. foreign religions. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. The, and the Buddhists, you know, we think of Buddhism as being a, a Chinese religion. The Buddhists are always getting in trouble. The Buddhists, anytime sort of economic bad you know, things happened, the Buddhists are the first to get blamed because they, because Buddhism comes from outside. Thank you so much for these answers. 
At this point, we have a couple of questions from our guests. Um, how did you become interested in church history? Well, I went to a, a Christian school as a kid, and I had a strong faith, a family of strong faith. So I grew up around it. And when I went to university, I started taking courses in like anthropology, different languages. I eventually started taking world religions. And for a while, I wasn't so interested in Christianity. I wanted, I was kind of a typical rebellious teenager and uh, college student. They wanted to study all the world's religions. So I took, I did that. I took courses in Buddhism and in Chinese philosophy and stuff like that. But it was after that, that I started to take church history at the end of my undergrad, my mind was totally blown. I saw everything in a completely new way. I had to go all the way around the block to finally come home and realize how interesting, how fascinating it is when you start to look at Christianity in the context, at any certain time period, just take the, Gre the, the, the Greco-Roman Empire. When you, there, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of what's called Gnosticism, these kind of secret kind of gospels start to get written later, they're quite late, um, but they've got a lot of Egyptian ideas, Persian ideas, and it's really wild, you know, like where did this stuff come from? Um, and it spreads light on our current day, how different people see. There are lots of connections between how people think about things today. So it was just fascinating. It just made everything, it made the faiths come alive. And I saw it in such nuanced um, ways. It, it, just, and it, just, it just blew my mind. And I've been doing it ever since. Wow, that's really interesting. Really quickly, we were wondering what maybe your favorite hobby is. You know, now I so I live in Japan and now now I kind of work on Japanese Christianity because Christianity was illegal in Japan from about 1640, although it had a big period of, of freedom when it first came in when the, when the when the Catholic missionaries brought it in in the 1500s. There were lots of converts. So what happened is there were, the Christ, Christianity spread into the culture, but then um, as the the again we were, see we always come back to this foreign connection. The Christians had these connections to the, the Portuguese and the Spanish traders, and so they had guns, right? So they had power because they were connected to the foreign lands, right? And that was very dangerous to the Japanese government because, you know, they, if people have a lot of guns, they, you know, they can't control them. So um, they shut it down about 1640. But Christian, Christian continued underground like it was officially illegal, and pe people were martyred, thrown in jail, tortured for 200 years, right? But they held on to the, the faith. And especially down where I am and out in over onto the east side, there's a place called it's Five Islands, Goto, which means five islands. That area was heavily Christian and some other other lying, outer lying um, islands were as well. So that culture that and, and how it survived and where it is today, how it um, relates to current more like, you know, you know, I don't know what we would say, standard, standard religion, or is some of this stuff heretical? Is it weird? How does it mix? What do we do with the Japanese cultural history, which is embedded in their religion? That's one of my main um, kind of research topics. And I also play, I try to learn, I've been a music, musician since I was a kid, and I try to learn, I'm trying to learn recorder, and I might start learning uh, Japanese shakuhachi flute. Um, I, I try to have fun, but I, I do like to study things, and Languages and, and uh, church history is kind of one of my main topics, my, my main hobbies. That's great. Dr. Godwin, we are so thankful that you decided to spend this time with us and share your knowledge. But we unfortunately, we have to say goodbye for now. Yeah, we probably we went over time. But anyway, thank you. It was really good <laughs> on my end as well.
Okay. Before we go, we just want to remind our listeners, if you have a question or comment, you can email it to questions at kidstalkchurchhistory.org and enter to win a copy of Simonetta's Carr's most recent book, Church History, which was named Best Children's Nonfiction by World Magazine. And on our website, you will also find past episodes, special offers, news, recommended readings, and more. And don't forget to tell your friends where they can find us. In partnership with the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals and on behalf of my co-hosts, Nina and Sophia, I'm Trindy. Thank you for listening to Kids Talk Church History.